0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Alley on the Run show. I'm your host, Allie Feller, and this is episode 41. On today's show, I'm talking to Danielle Semprola, who is the runner and blogger behind the T-Rex Runner. She has run 51 marathons, so she is officially a marathon maniac, And we talk about pretty much everything on this episode, so I'm gonna keep this intro nice and short. Danielle and her husband, AJ, have recently become foster parents, so I picked her brain about every single detail that I could about that, because I think it's so amazing and fascinating. She also opened up about her history with eating disorders, both anorexia and bulimia, and gave some really lovely advice that I think can really help people who might be going through something similar. And of course, we talk about running as well as her history, horseback riding. Yeah, because she got to have a horse growing up. Guess who didn't have a horse growing up? Me. But that's enough for me. Let's get into the episode. Please welcome to the show Danielle Samprola. Yay! Thank you so much for having me. This Thank you like so a much. dream of mine. I'm so excited. Oh my gosh, girl, you need bigger dreams. We'll, we'll work on it. <laughs> After you've like traveled the world, now you get to be on the Alley on the Run show. Um, well, I'm... I'm super excited to have you. I've read your blog forever. And so, you know, of course, I feel like we're best friends in real life, which is weird that we haven't actually met in real life. I know. I was going to say, are we not best friends? I know. I know. (laughs) So we've been internet friends forever. But before we get into all the good stuff, warm us up. Tell us who you are, where you are from, and what it is that you do.
1: All right. My name is Danielle Samprola. I am 31 years old and I live in Greenville, South Carolina right now. Um, I was born and raised in South Florida. So shout out to all my Miami people out there. Um, I am the author behind the blog T-Rex Runner, um, which I started in the end of 2011 probably after inspiration from Ali's blog <laughs> <laughs> here, following you along with the Hamptons Marathon and the I Heart Sweat Days. Yes! Yeah, so I basically started my blog because I wanted to run a marathon in every state and I just wanted a way to keep track of the memories because At the time, after my third marathon, I was like, oh, they're all running together. And I was like so dramatic about it. So I thought, well, I'll write it down and then I can read it and my mom will read it. And then that'll be the end of it. And obviously that was not the end of it because six years later, I'm still writing it and still running. So.
0: I love that. I love that that was your reason for starting. And we're going to get into all the blogging and the running and all that good stuff. But the first thing that I am dying to talk to you about is that you just became a foster parent. And I, did. I think you're the first person that I know other than like Joel and Julia on Parenthood, but that was a little <laughs> bit different. You're the first person I know who who's done that and who's talked about it. And I am dying to know every detail except except his name. I know the rules. Um, okay. But I'm really curious, can you tell me about AJ your husband? I'm interested in your decision to become foster parents and kind of how it's going.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I guess uh foster care and adoption is something that I've always thought about and always kind of expected would be a part of my life. Um and I've made that pretty clear, you know, in all my relationships. And so AJ was not blindsided by that, but I think as far as how we came to the decision to foster, I think he and I had different ideas about how that would come to be, and I thought, I think he thought, you know, okay, we'll have some biological kids first and then eventually kind of work our way into it once we have some parenting experience. Um, but ultimately, there it was kind of like a series of small decisions that just led us to realize that this was something that we wanted to do right now before we have biological kids. Um, and Strangely enough, one of those decisions um, was watching The Wire. We are big <laughs> fans of The Wire, <laughs> which is like really bizarre for me to even tell this story. But we've seen all the seasons, and um, the fourth season is all about basically the kids in Baltimore and their lives, and it really shows the progression of how these children go from being relatively, you know, innocent and. What their lives are like growing up, and then how they evolve into either becoming successful members of society or drug addicts or, you know, kind of the people on the street selling drugs. And for me, it really just painted the picture in a very clear way of how the system impacts people and how we grow up and, and create these cycles that are just perpetuated. And so, When we saw that, we kind of thought, okay, this is something that we believe that we can help with. And we just wanted to be really good role models and hopefully provide a safe place for kids while they're going through a really tough time. So you can say the wire is part of the reason why. That's
0: hilarious, but kind of amazing. Yeah. So how did Um, you, how did you, yeah, just keep going. I just want you to talk about this forever. Okay. I love it. I'm happy to. I'm happy to. So we
1: really... I guess thought it was going to take like a year because everything that I had read was like, oh, the licensing process takes forever. It's such a pain. You know, it t- I was reading blog, you know, of course, I'm checking out like every blog I can find and people are saying, oh, it took us a year, a year and a half to become licensed. And so this spring, we kind of sat down and talked about it. And I said, Okay, well, you know, if we start the licensing process now, then by this time next year, we can expect to be foster parents. And we were both kind of like, Okay, well, that's reasonable. You know, that's enough time to wrap our heads around it. And so we started the application process and licensing and found out that in South Carolina, it's state law now for it to only take 120 days or less. So we were like, shit. (laughs) That's August. But by that point, we were already like in it, you know, and so we had already met with a social worker. And she's like, Oh, yeah, you know, you'll have your license by the beginning of August. And we're like, What? (laughs) What do you what do you mean? Hmm. Um, And so we had to really start, you know, thinking and wrapping our our minds around it. And we had to go to trainings, and I'm a very research-oriented person, so I started reading every single book I could find, and we actually got our license, like I think it took 117 days, and we received it when I was actually hiking in Europe over the summer, and then when we got back, it was like, okay, it's go time, and we could get a placement at pretty much any time. And so. We got our first placement, um, a five-year-old boy, the day after Labor Day. So it's two weeks ago today, actually, that we've been, like, actually actively
0: foster parenting. That is so cool. I love this so much because I think it's such an amazing thing to do. And I, yeah, I'm going to have a million questions for you. Cool? Great. Absolutely. Um, (laughs) Okay. So my first question is, how do the placements work? Do you just get a phone call one day and they're like, oh, we have someone who needs a foster home? And is it, are you open to all ages? And what about, what are the timelines like? Is it like, oh, it's only two weeks or is it until they find something permanent? Is it a foster to adopt situation? Just tell me everything you know.
1: All right. So when we initially did our application, we had no idea what ages we thought would be appropriate for us. So we literally put like zero to 21 because you can be 21 in foster care here. And our social worker was like, um, no, <laughs> take it down like <laughs> 20 notches. What is wrong with you? So we did some soul searching and thought that for us, um, the ages of four to 10 would be the best fit because my husband and I both worked during the day, um, daycare was a little bit overwhelming to think about. And you know, with not being parents, um, teenagers seemed like a difficult first mm-hmm. leap, although we would like to work with teenagers eventually. Um, but we are not baby people, so we're like definitely not infants. Um, and then ultimately, we t- it's basically like elementary school age that we decided. Okay. So, so our license is written for children age four to 10, um, boys or girls. And you can specify if you're just interested in adopting, or not adopting, sorry, we're not adopting, but fostering children of a certain age, um, certain gender, there's also a huge checklist for what types of behavioral issues you can or are willing to accept um, and deal with. And so it could be behavioral, medical, uh, learning issues. It's like literally four pages of just, yes, I can handle this, no, I can't. So um, for example, things on there were like, would you accept a child into your home who has a mental health issue like depression or that their family has a history of depression? um or it could be a behavioral issue like aggression or perhaps like ADHD you could have you know this child has dyslexia it's just, it's literally the whole gamut they ask about crohn's disease they ask yes. about food allergies they did use, you yeah.
0: did you say yes to crohn's i hope you I, said yes we're not that I bad did.
1: I did. We we said yes to pretty much all kinds of digestive stuff because I have stomach problems also. So we're like, okay, stomach issues are good. We can handle those. Um, And really, actually, we pretty much were very accepting in general of most like mild to moderate forms of any issue. Um, Severe forms we were a little bit more leery of, but there's a different type of foster home that typically takes in children with um, a lot of medical or behavioral needs, and we are not that kind. So, yeah, so when you get your first placement call, uh, there's basically in in South Carolina, in our county, Greenville County, there's two people that could call you, and um, they're very friendly. And they basically just kind of present the information that they have, which is, okay, you know, let's say we've got a a five-year-old boy, Um, he's coming into foster care for these reasons, and they tell you what they know, which sometimes is a lot, Um, sometimes it's very little. And they kind of go through any medical issues or behavioral issues that the children are known to have. And again, you know, if a child is first coming into foster care, which our placement was, they might not have very much information because the kid's not in the system yet. They are just going based on very little kind of investigation or what they've heard from other people that know this child. So there might be limited information. Whereas if, you're, would, if you would be accepting a placement that is coming from another foster home, there's probably a lot more information about what that child's needs are. So in this case, our first placement was coming into foster care for the first time. And so they really didn't know very much about him or his situation. But you know, as the days go by, you learn a little bit more talking to caseworkers and social workers um, about their circumstances, and we've been extremely fortunate. Our foster son is very well behaved. He's very smart, um, and he has just really been a joy to have in our house. Besides the occasional tantrum, but what <laughs> five-year-old doesn't throw tantrums? Right, uh, so. I'm
0: I'm 32 and I have tantrums. So exactly,
1: you know <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah that's pretty much how it works and you're you know you're able to say yes or no to any placement um you know nobody's forcing you to take children into your home so you have leeway and if it's not a good time for you based on you know other obligations that you have coming up you can say that as well so we accepted the first call that we received but we were fully prepared for it not to work out that way also
0: that is so cool and do they tell you how long it will be for how does the timing work
1: So the timing depends on the situation and so when children first come into foster care there's what's called a probable cause hearing that typically takes place within about three days of them coming into foster care. And that's just DSS or sorry Department of Social Services um, and the government agencies determining whether there is enough reason for the child to be removed from their parents. In our case we are now two weeks in and that, that hearing still has not been had for a variety of reasons. So at this point. Once that hearing is held, it will determine whether our foster son will stay in care for a little bit longer or if he'll go back home. So the short answer is there are no timelines. You never know anything. The kids could come and go at any time Mm -hmm. and you kind of just have to be prepared for that. But after the initial hearings, then they start setting a plan for the parents to be reunified with their kids. And it's basically a list of things that the parents would have to do in order to regain custody. And at that point, you have a little bit better of an idea of how long the kids will be in care. Um, But in our situation, we really don't know. He could leave tomorrow or he could be with us for six months or a year. We just don't know. Wow.
0: So So he's five. So, I mean, he has a pretty good idea what's going on. How did he take to you and AJ?
1: um, So when he first walked into our house, he you know we tried to introduce ourselves and it was really awkward because we're like you know what do we say he's like how do you introduce yourself to a five-year-old and what does he call you so we had like we were really awkward about it but he was not concerned with who we were what our names were he walked right into our house and he goes where's my toys oh and where's my bed can i see my room and i was like uh yeah sure Uh so he just went right upstairs and um you know i think his social worker had really buttered him up and was like, Oh, they've got tons of toys mm-hmm. for you. And Aww. which was not true. Like I had run out and bought them like five minutes before <laughs> he got there. Cause we didn't know he was coming. So <laughs> thankfully I Walmart to the rescue, um, for once. So we, you know, just kind of played with him and, you know, I gave him a bath and we read some stories and he went to bed. I think at first, with a child his age, it seems more like, oh, I'm just having a fun sleepover with Mm -hmm. these nice people that are, you know, letting me play with toys and whatever. But um, now that we've had him a little longer, he's definitely starting to miss his family. He's starting to ask a little bit more about, you know, when can I go home? Where's my mom? Can I talk to my mom? That sort of thing, which is hard. Um, But we, you know, we can't, We can't answer those questions any better than the information we have, which is just to say, you know, I'm really sorry, buddy. I know your mom misses you, too, but we don't know when you're going to go home. We don't get to decide, but we'll keep you safe and, you know, try to make sure you have fun until you can. And that's really all you can say, because we don't know when he's going to go home. So it's tough to have those conversations and those moments. But for the most part, those are, I would say, few and far between and tend to be at nighttime kind of thing
0: you know yeah. he wants his mom to tuck him in of course so oh that's so tough um yeah. so one thing and and the, I know it's not the same I've always <laughs> wanted to foster dogs but yes. my concern is I will get so attached that I will end up with 40 dogs <laughs> you will <laughs> um, I used to foster dogs and oh. I had four so <laughs> oh gosh okay we're gonna talk about that but I wonder with with fostering children is that something that that they prepare you for that they talk about in terms of like how do you not get too attached?
1: Yes, and I think that's probably the number one concern that keeps people from fostering, typically. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been the most common thing people have said to us is, you know, I'm so glad you're doing it, but I couldn't do it because I would get too attached. And I would say, you know, in our, the way that we think about it is, of, you know, of course we get attached. Like these kids are so sweet and they're hugging you and, you know, they're, they are wonderful. And we, it's been a joy to have him in our home. And of course, we will be sad when he leaves. But with that being said, the way we look at it is, you know, as adults, we have the capability to handle our emotions. Right. And so we just have the understanding that it's really important for these kids to have someone who gets attached to them. They deserve to have someone who is attached to them and who loves them and is you know, fully rooting for them, fully in their corner and doing all of the things that a parent is supposed to do. And so when the time comes for that bond to unfortunately break, we believe that as adults, we have the tool to handle that. And it's much more important that our hearts be broken rather than having these children's hearts be broken by not having people that care about them in their lives. Does that make sense?
0: So it's kind of like
1: we're just looking at it from that perspective, I guess.
0: I think you're like the smartest, most mature person I've ever talked to. That was lovely. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> I'm you. sitting here. I liked when you said, as adults, we have control of our emotions. I was like, speak for yourself. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> um,
1: That's true. We ideally have control over our, emotion, our emotions, more yes, than a five-year-old.
0: Exactly. <laughs> um, well, I give I give you and AJ both so much credit. It's, it's just such an amazing thing, and it's something that I – I would so love to do at some point in my life. I don't know when that will be, Um, but Brian and I are similar. We've always talked about wanting to adopt or we want kids and we're not sure exactly how that Mm. will play out someday, but um, that's why it's been so fascinating following your journey. I know it's only two weeks in, but I'm, I'm really loving it because I've already learned a lot. So I appreciate that. And I think it's amazing that you're sharing this because I think you're, you're teaching so many people about what it's like to foster. And that's really cool. So thank you.
1: I hope so. That was, you know, I think that's such an element of unknown because like you said, you know, we're the first people that, you know, that are fostering and you don't, we don't know each other like in real life. So you know, it's just to have somebody, whether it's on the internet or, you know, in your personal life that you actually know who's experienced this, it really removes the mystery and it removes some of the fear um, that surrounds foster care. And, you know, why are kids in the system and what types of issues do they have? And, you know, I know for my family, they were really really concerned about what type of impact this would have on my marriage and what type of impact it would have on me in terms of stress level and what types of children would be in our home but then once you meet these kids they're just children you know i mean they're they're just kids and all children whether they're biological or adopted or foster children all have their issues and all have their moments when they're difficult and more importantly have many more moments when they're you know a huge blessing so if I can show that in some way, whether it's the good times or the bad times and just demystify foster care a little bit, then I'll feel like I've accomplished my goal.
0: Oh, that's awesome. And I will say when I, when I think of foster care, I think, you know, I grew up in like a tiny town in Kintookook. It was like the Mm -hmm. least diverse, least like worldly place ever. I love it, but it, you know, there was a lot I didn't know about growing up. And I think that my first The first thing I ever knew about foster care was, do you remember that movie Angels in the Outfield? Yes. Yes. That's right. And all those kids were in foster care. They all lived in that house. And like the woman like had no money. They were in such a rough place. Like that's what I still think of. And it's, you know, and it's like, that's not, and you hear the words, the system. Uh And you automatically, I mean, at least in my experience and what I've seen, you hear the words, the system. And that doesn't exactly evoke all these wonderful, warm (laughs) emotions. So I I just think it's really great to hear your side of everything and what it can be and all the positive things that can come from it and the really amazing impact you can have on that child. So kudos to you guys. Well, thank you. Awesome. So before we move on to a different topic, I want to know what is the greatest lesson you have learned in two weeks of being a parent?
1: The greatest lesson I've learned? um, Well, As far as actual parenting strategies, um, we took our foster son to the park and he really wanted an ice cream and, you know, he'd eaten lunch. So we're like, okay, that's fine. You can have an ice cream. And so we got him one and then we tried to make him leave the park like 10 minutes later. And that was the wrong move. We should have gotten that ice cream cone as we were walking (laughs) out of the park. as like a source of bribery because he had no incentive to leave after he had his ice cream. So. (laughs) <laughs> Always give the ice cream at the end of the park is what I'm, <laughs> like a big takeaway. Um, but on a personal level, I feel like really I've learned that there are a lot of personality traits um, in myself that I didn't know that I had. And you know, speaking frankly, I wasn't really sure how good of a parent I would be. Um, I thought I would be extremely neurotic and probably impatient, and um, you know, not the nurturing person that I hoped to be, but I also, part of the reason why we wanted to do foster care was I thought I could be a really great advocate for children that had, you know, developmental delays or emotional issues or things like that, because I'm such a researcher and such an advocate in my own life. um, And I thought that I could be helpful in that way, but a pleasant surprise has really been that I am infinitely more patient than I thought I was and much more nurturing. and. Um, I've really, it sounds weird to say, but I really like the person that, you know, becoming a parent has turned me into because it's bringing out the less selfish side of myself. I don't have as much time to think about like, oh, am I going to get in my two workouts today? Or like, do I have time to watch the Kardashians? Which like the answer is always yes. I always have time (laughs) with the Kardashians, but you know what I mean? Like it's just, I have less time to think about what I want and what's stressing me out and what I'm worrying about. And so as a result, I think overall, I've become much more focused and much more positive. And that's been really like,
0: Pleasant. (laughs) Um, That's awesome. Yeah. And that gives me a lot of hope because I think we're so, all the things you just described, I'm like over here nodding because I think we're really similar in a lot of ways, which is obviously why we're internet best friends. And yeah, so that's, I, I love that. And one thing you mentioned, which is a perfect segue into the next thing I wanted to talk about, you mentioned being an advocate. And I think I actually found your blog when you were writing about your past with an eating disorder. And Mm -hmm. you have been really open and honest about that And a really good advocate for, I think, the reality of recovering from an eating disorder Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's not out there very much Like in terms of people really being honest about the fact that like certain things are triggering So I, I, if you're open to it, I would love to talk a little bit more about that And kind of why why you've decided to share and sort of where you're at now and, And everything that goes into that
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd love to talk about that. You know, I started the Life with Ed series. It was actually um, another blogger gave me the idea. There was a blogger who she no longer writes anymore, but she wrote about life with binge eating disorder. And it really gave me so much perspective into what people with binge eating disorder struggle with, and, you know, the thought process and, at the time, I was, um, you know, waist deep in uh, pr- probably was a ten year battle at that point with um, anorexia and bulimia, and I really related to a lot of the things she said, and I thought that the her honesty was so helpful, and I actually had this moment because you know when I was in college, when I was a freshman in college, and you can edit this out, but you you know Barry Lieberman, she was my college roommate freshman year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had a moment, um, where I was really, really sick with anorexia at that point. And, you know, she threatened to tell my mom what was going on. And my response to that in my head was, well, I'll just be bulimic because then she won't know. Um, and I ended up, you know, gaining more weight. And so I looked, look with bulimia, I personally looked fairly normal. I was thin, but not oddly thin. Um, Most people just thought I was really lucky, like genetically blessed. And they're like, oh, look how skinny she is. Um, So I was able to avoid a lot of questions that way. And the moment that I decided to write that blog to start that series um, was I there was a burrito place that I went to um, for lunch about once a week when I used to work in Charleston. And the guy made a comment, um, I had asked him to put light a little bit of ranch dressing on my burrito, just like, tiny amount and I went to this place all the time they knew exactly how much I was talking about yeah. and the guy squirted a ton of dressing on my burrito and just kind of gave me this look like what are you gonna do and I was like oh you know that's not how much I wanted like would you mind just taking a little bit of that off and the guy's like what are you anorexic <gasps> and I was like ha ah, no I like, just don't like a lot of ranch dressing like and the other guy that was staying next to him goes dude come on you know she's bulimic Whoa! And like, just, they just were like laughing cause they, they were, it was a joke to them. Like they didn't know that or think that they were just like making a joke. And I, at that moment I was just like, people think this is okay to like joke about. And they, and they don't understand like how triggering this moment is, how big of a deal that ranch dressing is. And so it really inspired me to write about it. And I just thought, you know, I've got to say something and that's where the series kind of came from. Um, and so for me, it became a, a, a bridge to recovery, I guess. Um, I had to have stomach surgery. I have really severe acid reflux, and it was damaging my esophagus. So I had uh, stomach surgery about four years ago, and part of the surgery meant that I was no longer going to be able to vomit anymore. Um, and as bulimic, you know, that's pretty important part of my day at that point. And so um, it was very nerve wracking for me but I also felt like this is going to force me to get better because I literally cannot throw up anymore I have to confront the demons that are that I'm dealing with by the way this is not recommended my doctor would kill me if he knew that this was true but um, I didn't tell him that I had an eating disorder I just went through with it because I felt like I could have this surgery and I could get better and I did I have not thrown up since that surgery And I haven't tried to make myself, and that's partially because I can't throw up anymore, but it's also because I had to learn different coping strategies. And one of the ways that I started to deal with the change was um, through writing and through my blog. And so for me, writing was cathartic, and once I realized how much it was touching people, and especially fathers, I think the best emails and the best responses I've gotten on those posts are from fathers who have emailed me and said, my daughter has been sick for five years. I've never been able to understand what's going on in her head. She's never been able to explain it to me. And you made it make perfect sense. And that was really meaningful for me because my own father was, and probably to some extent is very much in denial about how sick I was. Um, Even when I was, you know, getting treatment and, you know, in various phases of the recovery process, it was like a, just something that he didn't want to think about, um, which I understand you don't want your child to, to be sick. And especially, you know, with mental health issues, it's a touchy subject for a lot of people. So I felt like the more honest I was with myself, the more honest I was able to be with other people and help families and help friends who didn't know what to do. And so that's why I've continued writing about it. And obviously, you know, now I've been in recovery, real, like real true recovery um, I would say for two years. Uh, I think the first two years were really just a daily struggle for me. They, it was constant unhealthy thoughts about food, constant um, you know, trying to purge out calories with exercise, and you know, struggling with feeling like I hadn't earned my food that day. But eventually, what I started doing was, anytime I thought something negative about myself, whether it was about my body or about food, I would just start talking back to myself like i literally would have these conversations in my head where i'd be like oh you're fat you you can't have those potato chips and then i would the other side of my head would go no you're not fat you know you're perfectly healthy you've worked so hard and just like be start saying really positive things to myself and i found that as i started doing that my actions and my thoughts started to align and it became much easier for me to stay healthy um, as i really did the mental work because if you just start recovering on a weight basis and you just start eating more, that's not addressing the root of your problems. So for me, a really great therapist, eight therapists over the course of two years. Um, And, you know, but you can have all the therapists in the world, but if you're not ready to do the work, nothing's going to happen. So you have to really be in a place where you're willing to accept help. And it took me uh, the better part of 10 years, 12 years to get to that point. But once it did, I feel like, It's almost it's not hard for me to imagine because I still have my moments and I still have unhealthy thoughts But i've come so far that I I guess I kind of can't imagine going back Which is that's the first time i've ever really had that thought now that i'm now that i'm saying it out loud it's weird to say that but Um, I feel like now I have the tools I need to be healthy for the rest of my life.
0: That's amazing. What was the hardest part of recovery?
1: um I guess the hardest part was probably that people thought it would be quick. It's frustrating because recovery takes a really long time, and like I just spoke about, retraining my brain Mm -hmm. um, that took years to do. And it, you know, I started going, I started getting treatment for my eating disorder the first time in 2005, and was, I would say, really recovered in 2015. So to put it in perspective, that's 10 years for something that my parents thought was going to take, you know, three to six months. Mm -hmm. And you feel like a disappointment when you're not meeting people's expectations for you. And if it was as simple as eating a cheeseburger or as simple as, you know, just exercising less, then it would be easy. And then everyone would do it. But there's a reason why, you know, anorexia has the highest fatality rate of any of any mental health disorder, it's because it's not that simple to recover. Um, And so full recovery is possible. But the length of time it took sometimes made it feel impossible to me. Um, And it was discouraging and disappointing to my friends and family. And I think that was that was the hard part for me.
0: Yeah, that's tough. If you don't mind me asking, when did it when did your eating disorder start? Or do you remember kind of why?
1: I couldn't identify a moment, but it started when I was 16. Um, I really was having some problems at home and I, you know, for background, I was a straight A student and, you know, rode horses competitively my whole life. And, you know, upper middle class white girl, like couldn't be more basic if I tried, (laughs) Um, you know, grew up in a great area, great schools. But I started clashing with my family a lot in high school, as many kids do. Mm -hmm. Um, I had Eight. This is very strange to say, but I had become like extremely religious and my family is not religious at all. And I had a boyfriend that I had met at church and they couldn't stand him. They thought the whole church thing was re- weird. And, you know, that was like my rebellion was like go to <laughs> Bible study. And they were like, you're the worst. <laughs> Who does that? <laughs> go do some drugs. Come on. <laughs> like literally that was like they would have been probably been able to handle that better than me going to Bible study. Um, but I just felt really out of place at home, really out of place at school. And I think I was just really struggling to find control over my own choices. Um, you know, my parents are amazing people and we have a wonderful relationship now, but I, you know, I have, they were very strict when I was growing up, had very high expectations and I constantly felt like I was struggling to meet them. And so for me, it was just like I needed something that I felt like I could control. And food was that thing. Mm. And it just kind of got worse, especially my freshman year of college was really, I hit a low point with food because my boyfriend and I were breaking up and, you know, I had all this independence and total control over my food, but I was also completely overwhelmed by life at that point and got extremely sick. And that was just kind of the beginning of a downward spiral that lasted a long time. And you know, in in a way, i don't I don't want to say I'm to blame, but I've made some really terrible relationship choices in my life that have definitely not impacted my mental health uh, for the best. So it just kind of became a cycle um that eventually I broke out out of. And i I thought I would be one of those people who said, "I'll never be fully recovered." And I think I've written that on my blog. I think I've said, I don't think I'll ever be able to say I'm fully recovered, but I'm happy to say that I can say that now with confidence that I am fully recovered, but it took much longer than I thought it would.
0: Yeah. Well, that's amazing. I, again, give you so much credit. You're just amazing. Do you have any, or what would you say is your best advice for people who are in a similar situation to what you've been in before?
1: Like people who are currently struggling with an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say the best advice is get a great therapist, and that is really hard to do. Like I said, I've had eight of them, Um, and that's because it took eight to find the right fit. Um, I had therapists that I felt like didn't really understand or that I wasn't connecting with, but when I found the right person, she was able to put the importance of recovery in perspective for me. I'll never forget what she said, because I, I think I had been with AJ at that point for maybe like a year, um and things were starting to you know get more serious and she was like you know when are you going to start recovering and i was like well you know i i definitely want to be healthy by the time i have kids and she's like well you have to practice she's like do you think you're just going to wake up one day pregnant and be like oh i'm better she's like it doesn't work that way you have to spend a little bit of time every single day working towards recovery. And, you know, you might take three steps forward and then 10 steps back, but you have to keep making this forward progress. And if you can't do it for yourself right now, find a reason, find a person or a thing that you can do it for. And at that point, that person was AJ for me. Um, I didn't want him to have to deal with the 50 year old version of me that is still bulimic. Like that, that mm-hmm. thought was impossible. It was like, I cannot be like an old woman with an eating disorder that I've had since I was 16. But at the same time, I was not prepared to take any steps to recover. So when she said that to me, it really made it seem like this is going to be a process. And then I was able to start taking those steps with her help. So I would say, find a therapist, but don't give up when you don't find the right one right away because it might take a really long time, but it'll be worth it once you find one.
0: And do you have any tips for finding a great therapist? Because I will say that for me, like at my lowest point when I was super sick a couple years ago, I, was, I knew I was depressed and everyone was like, get a therapist, get a therapist. And for me at the time, I was like, In my head, it was just one more doctor, and I was already Mm -hmm, seeing mm -hmm. so many doctors. I was too; I could barely leave the house. I was so sick. I didn't want to spend the money. Like I had, yep. I knew that it could help me, but I had every excuse, and one of my biggest ones was I don't know how to find one. And people are like, go to PsychologyToday.com, and I've spent more time on that site. So I do go to therapy now. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't love the therapist I like him um Mm -hmm. but I'm curious if you have any advice about finding a great one any resources you would suggest or kind of how to how to find your fit yeah well you know for eating disorders specifically
1: um for, for me it was very important that the therapist that I work with be able to give me specific tools like I'm a person who does well with a to-do list as I know you are (laughs) so I wanted to be able to check boxes off (laughs) like do this and you will get better do this and you will get better so for me the first step was looking up eating disorder specialists in my area Um, and you can do that through NIDA's website that's National Eating Disorder Association they have a lot of resources Um, or even just calling recovery centers that are nearby Um, if you live in a major city, you're bound to have an eating disorder recovery center and they can point you towards someone who is a specialist. Um, but also for me, a lot of it was just trial and error because I quickly realized like, okay, well, you know, a 60 year old man is probably not going to be able to like relate to me super well Mm -hmm. as a, you know, young 20 something with an eating disorder. So I kind of started thinking about what I wanted and what strategies were important, but I also started looking outside the box and, You know, I think our natural inclination, at least for me personally, is like, I want to go to what I perceive as the highest level. So whether that is a psychiatrist or a psychologist, I'm like, I want a doctor. Right. And so that was what I was thinking at first was I, I want someone with a doctor in front of their name. Well, the therapist that I ended up having, having that helps me the most was a licensed social worker, and she. But she specialized in the types of issues that I had, and not only my eating disorder, but you know some other um, relationship issues and things that I was struggling with. So I guess don't limit yourself to thinking of only psychiatrists if you're like you know looking for medication, or if you're only looking at psychologists. There's a whole range of people that are certified counselors, licensed social workers. All different things that all may have different experiences they can bring to the table that it might ultimately
0: be helpful. That is great advice. So do you want to talk about running? Yes. Okay. I would love to. Let's talk a little bit about running. You mentioned that you grew up and you rode horses competitively, which I did. Um, like pretty similar. I feel like we've talked about how we have a lot in common. So when mm-hmm. I was like 10, I took a horseback riding lesson and I got thrown off the back of the horse. <laughs> uh, I don't think I've been Which back is on one exactly since. exactly the same. Yeah. So I feel like yet again, <laughs> so just like. these parallel lives we find ourselves in. How did, how did you go from horseback riding to becoming a marathon maniac? And I'm, I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit more about marathon maniacs and how you got into that and, and where you're at now with running?
1: Yes. Like I said, rode horses competitively my whole life and started having a lot of back problems. And also, it's not that I grew out of it, but eventually I went to college and, you know, my parents were not interested for whatever reason in shipping my horse up to the University of
0: Maryland. Wait, wait. Time out. (laughs) Time out. You had your own horse? I did have my own horse. What yes. What the hell? You know, see, <laughs> I used to ask for a horse and I never got one. I didn't get a horse. You're one of those cool girls that got a horse. Damn. All right. Sorry. Carry I, on. Wait, What was your horse's I name? Did. His name was Monty. I did not name him.
1: Um, I would not have named him that. But I, my parents actually moved to when I was 12, we moved to a house that had a barn already oh. on the property and like some pasture. So I was able to get a horse and keep him at my house, which was made it substantially like less expensive because it's outrageously expensive to board a horse, as I would discover as an adult when I got <laughs> one as an adult. Um, but yeah, so I rode horses competitively. Um, and then once I went to college, that really couldn't continue. Um, I wasn't really in a position to you know, ride for the equestrian team. My parents were like not interested in sending my horse up there. Um, understandably so while they were paying for college. So, you know, no need. And so it just kind of fell away from me. It was always something that I loved, but, uh, just kind of, you know, took a back seat. And then, uh, as far as running, I actually started running. I ran my very first ever minute because I was in a really horrible, um, abusive relationship in college and, saw these people running down the street and I like was, I saw them and they looked so happy and I just thought, Oh my gosh, if I run, I'll be happy. Like that literally was my thought process. It's not any more complicated than that. I saw people running, they looked happy. I wanted to be happy. So I thought I will run. And, um, I started doing the couch to 5k program. And I remember, the first, it's literally like the first interval is like run for one minute walk for 90 seconds and I was like oh my gosh I can do that that's so easy this is a joke I'm gonna you know I can run the 5k right now and I remember looking down at my iPod because this was you know back in the day um and it, it said I had only been running for 30 seconds and I like was about to collapse I was yeah. breathing so hard it's <laughs> like oh my god so Um, From that point on, I started doing couch to 5K, but then I ended up breaking my foot, fell away from it. Long story short, came back to running um, after I got married. I got married when I was really young. Um, I was 23, and my first marriage was pretty terrible, as I've not really spoken a lot about in detail on my blog, but obviously, I am divorced now, so... That marriage uh, went downhill very, very quickly. After we got married, um, it was literally about a month in that it just completely imploded, wow. um, which sounds dramatic, but it is. And so I just, I needed to get out of my house and running was a way for me to do that. I started doing couch to 5K again and I just had so much emotion and so much um, pain and you know was trying to work things out with my husband, but, you know, I just had so many feelings that I needed to work through. And so I started just running longer and longer and I finished couch to 5K. And then I was like, well, I'll see if I can run four miles and four turned into 10, which turned into a half marathon, which turned into a marathon. And I, I mean, I went from running zero miles at all in September when I got married to like 70 mile weeks in December, which spoiler alert, I got a stress fracture very quickly.
0: (laughs) In case you're wondering, don't try that at
1: home really bad idea, but that's how desperate I was to just kind of like escape this emotional situation. And, um, after recovering from said stress fracture, um, I then it took me eight months and then I ran my second marathon, um, after getting separated. And I just found that running really was such an outlet for me and just a release valve for my emotions while I was going through the process of getting divorced and, um, kind of the rest is history. I mean, I, just got this idea that I wanted to do a marathon in every state. And when I started looking for people who had done that, I came across Marathon Maniacs, which is a running club for literally people who are just crazy about marathons and want to do a lot of them in a short amount of time. Um, And I kept reading that these people were meeting up at races and they were sharing hotel rooms and it was a great way to cut costs. And oh, there's another club and it's called the 50 States Marathon Club. And so obviously I was like, well, I'm joining every club that I can find. (laughs) I'm getting every (laughs) t-shirt. Like I want the jackets. Like I want all of it. Cause I just, I needed something that was my own and something that I could belong to. And, you know, once you start meeting marathon maniacs, once you meet people who have run 300, 400 marathons, and I know people like that it makes your obsession with it seem normal. (laughs) And there's good and bad things about that, but point being, it I was like, there's other people that do this. Like, I'm not weird, I can go out, I can meet up with my friends all over the country, all over the world, and run, and I'm seeing new places, I'm with these amazing people, and running gave me so much confidence because I had never traveled by myself, I had never, I wasn't athletic, like I was, you know, decent at riding horses, but not athletic besides that. And I found all these skills and abilities and like new things that I didn't know I had. And I just really loved the person that I became through the confidence that running gave me. That's amazing.
0: Sure. And you've run 51 marathons, is that correct?
1: 51, yeah, it's wow. not a very pretty number, is it? No, <laughs> I know you need to
0: that round that up. You, you need to get to a hundred. <laughs> That's the next round number. Oh my gosh. <laughs> So of the 51, do you have a favorite yeah. that stands out? I feel like you do, and I feel like I know what you're going to say, and I'm going to be proud of myself, <laughs> but I'll let you answer. I feel like you definitely know what it is. Yes, I do have a favorite. Uh, my
1: favorite is the Route 66 yes! Marathon. I knew it. Yes. <laughs> well, I have run it like six years in a row, so <laughs> kind of a giveaway. Um, yeah, it's it, random, right? It's in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and... If you had told me that my favorite marathon or one of my favorite places in the world would be Tulsa, Oklahoma six years ago, I would have thought you were insane. No offense to Tulsa people, but you know, Oklahoma doesn't have the best reputation, right? You're just like, oh, it's very flat and boring, but no, it's amazing. It is incredible. And I fell in love with Tulsa so hard the first time I went to Route 66. And, and I did it because I needed an Oklahoma marathon. I needed to check off that state. And I've gone back every year since then. It is just the most fun you can have over 26.2 miles. Um, they have like people there make jello shots, which is, <laughs> sounds insane, and it is insane. But there were last year nine different alcohol-related oh, stops God. on the course. I did not drink at all of them.
0: I was going to say that's... nine stops. That would be at least 18 times. <laughs> I would be barfing and. <laughs> Pooping, let's be honest,
1: well, I mean, to be fair, I do not race route sixty six. I just go to run it. But the community gets behind it so much um that they're clearly if they're making five thousand jello shots, like they're oh into my it God. and they have a literally they make a sign each year that says how many jello shots they made. And last year it was five thousand. That's I- why I know that number.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> okay. So of the fifty states, how many have you run marathons in?
1: Um, I have run marathons in 38 states, I think. And then I've done half marathons now in an additional three, I think. I think I'm at like state 41. So eventually I decided to stop running marathons. I have had a bad back since I was 16 um, probably as a result of all the horseback riding. And, you know, finally in 2014, really was consistently having problems. I lost control of my right leg at a, at a race yeah. that I was running, which was obviously really terrifying. Um, and eventually was told that I needed major spinal surgery um, and would never run again. And at that moment, well, first of all, I was like, no, I rejected that. But I went and looked for, you know, a thousand more opinions. I think I talked to like six or seven different surgeons, but I knew regardless of what surgery I ended up having, I was going to need to change what I was doing. I was running way too many marathons, too many miles, and just really destroying my back in the process. So I decided to end my 50 states marathon goal um at the end of twenty fourteen and then finish the rest of the states with half marathons. No, that's not right. Is that right? What year is it right now? It's twenty seventeen. It's twenty seventeen. Okay, so I ran I ran my last marathon in twenty fifteen. In November twenty fifteen. Yes, that is right. Okay. But didn't you just um, do Prague? I did, yes. I was just gonna say yeah. so I took 18 months off. I'm a big liar and I took 18 months off. Um and I got invited to run the Prague marathon and When I initially wrote them back um, about being on the press team, I said, okay, well, I'm going to come, but I won't run. I'll just cover it. And they were like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And then I was like, well, I was like, what if I just try, like, what if I try and really train the right way? Um, I had started doing a lot more strength training. I had a much stronger core and I thought you know, if I really train the right way and my back still you know cannot handle doing a marathon then i'll then i won't do them but what if i can get through training and what if i can do a marathon successfully knowing that i'm never going to be not that i was ever fast at all but like knowing that even now i can't do the training volume that i used to be able to do but just if i could do it and have fun and not be in pain the whole time it would be worth it and so I made it mostly in one piece through the training cycle um, and then ran Prague and unfortunately did have problems with my back during the race. And it was not the race that I wanted it to be, Um, but I did have a lot of fun. And it, you know, will I run another marathon? Maybe, maybe not. Depends which one they invite me to next. (laughs) Depends how appealing the destination is. (laughs)
0: I love that. Okay. So I will start wrapping this up with you before we sprint to the finish. But one thing okay. that I want to ask before we do that is, and we just have to have you back because we haven't even talked about travel and all that good stuff. You have so much to share. Oh my gosh! Um, but I am curious. We, we talked a little bit about your blog and that you've really shared openly and honestly, and you're doing that now. Do you ever, I don't know. I'm just curious about your decision to, to share a lot on your blog. And if you ever, Wish you didn't. If you've ever gotten like criticism that has held you back at all, or if you're you just kind of roll with it. So, I will say I have been
1: extremely fortunate. Um, I have personally never received any negative comments on my blog, Um, I've never received to my knowledge any like online kind of negativity. Um, there was one, <laughs> this is actually funny. There was an old a reader of mine who was an older man. And I used to put like a lot of like gifs in my blog posts. I still kind of do. And I used to get these angry emails from him that would be like, damn it. I love your blog so much, but stop putting the moving pictures in there. I can't concentrate. The moving pictures. <laughs> the moving pictures. And I was like, I love you, but no, I'm not stopping. Because yeah. <laughs> my favorite things. <laughs> that's That's funny that's the most
0: negative comment that's amazing that's lucky what's that like
1: (laughs) yeah I know um yeah I mean the online world can be brutal but no I to me I have found that I do not regret anything I've posted on my blog with possible exceptions of like my weird dating life before I met AJ which I'm like "Mm, probably should delete those posts from 2011 (laughs) just leave those up there um no but I I will say that Everything that I have shared has been extremely thought out in terms of, is this okay to say? And I've been very conscious about telling my story and not the story of the people in my life, because I don't feel like their stories are mine to share. So an example of that would be, you know, I mentioned that I'm divorced well, I've never talked on my blog about why I got divorced and I never will, because that's, you know, that's something personal that really honestly has more to do with my ex-husband. And it's not respectful for me to share that information about him, regardless of the circumstances. So I just have always approached it from, if I tell my side of it, then I'm not going to regret being honest. But I think the only things I would really regret saying would be, information about other people that just they didn't ask to have released. So, I've always thought really carefully and anything I've talked to any any time I've mentioned AJ or anything about our relationship, he always reads my posts first and, you know, make sure he's okay with them. Um, so we're, we're very open about that. But no, I don't have any regrets, fortunately. And so far, I have avoided the trolls. Please don't no. start now, trolls.
0: <laughs> no. no, be nice. Everyone be nice. Everyone just in general, be nice. No, well, I think it's amazing. Obviously, I, I love your story and what you share. I could talk to you forever. But in the spirit of letting you get back to your job, are you ready to sprint to the finish? I am so ready for this, yeah. Allie. I have been practicing. I know, I am ready. What if I threw in some curveball questions, though? I've be- See, I've even been practicing, oh like, God. <laughs>
1: any question, like, so I'm prepared. No, now you're going to mess me up, and no, no, I'll no, probably no. I probably
0: have a t- I won't. You know what's coming. <laughs> All right. What would your last meal on earth be? Okay. Um, tentatively,
1: tacos, but since I can't eat gluten, it would really be just pumpernickel bread. It would be, like, 12 <laughs> loaves of pumpernickel bread. Until I died. Until my stomach exploded I died. Perfect. Okay. What is your favorite movie? <laughs> this is horrible. Stand and Deliver. I don't know. If you recall, you may have seen this in high school math class. It's about underprivileged children in the L.A. school system who take AP Calculus and, Yep. you know, that I one. I remember.
0: I remember and wedding crashers yeah classic (laughs) love it similar right (laughs) yeah yeah same uh greatest fear the dark but also
1: dying before i have a chance to do all the things i want to do which is partially why i travel so much and why we started doing foster care because i was just like what if i die i gotta do i gotta do all this stuff
0: so i love that i need to embrace that more what is your I, i mean we pretty much answered it but what is your favorite race you've ever done um, Route sixty six is definitely my favorite, but
1: I also love the Hatfield McCoy Marathon, which is a tiny um, little race on the West Virginia Kentucky border. It runs through both states, and I also love Chicago. Nice. Uh, favorite place you've ever run? Queenstown, New Zealand. Mm-hmm. It is beautiful. You've got the mountains in the background, and there's like so many amazing trails and paths, and just you can just run forever there. Favorite TV show? Ooh. I, I love all reality like marriage themed shows so like 90 Day Fiance or Married at First Sight it's like just the worst television you can think of I probably watch it whatever it is I, I watch it I'm a fan
0: <laughs> reality TV forever what is the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning really let's check Instagram I'm not gonna lie yeah same <laughs> what is the last thing you do before you close your eyes at night I have tried to be really intentional
1: about reading every night um, just to kind of quiet my mind. So I have my Kindle next to my bed and right now I'm reading a book called Hillbilly Elegy that is all about life in rural Appalachia. So that's been really interesting. Cool. Yeah, I just read typically. Love it. Saturday long run or Sunday long run? Um, Saturday, but I, I have done Sunday long runs, but I prefer to like get it out of the way and then have Sunday as a rest day. Love it. What is your favorite thing to do
0: after a long run? Take a really hot shower, Mm. like the hottest the water can possibly go. Nice. Uh, Childhood celebrity crush? Boring, but JTT for sure. I had a whole wall of JTT posters and, it, you know. Yep, same. Uh, Do you have
1: a favorite runner? Yes. Um, Amy Hastings Craig is my favorite runner because my maiden name is Hastings. And I just think she always is like so positive and I loved – you know, watching her, you know, come back from the disappointment of 2012 and not making the Olympic team and then
0: 2016, just crushing it. So that was awesome. That was rude for her. Yeah, she's great. Okay, you know what's coming. You are hosting a <laughs> dinner party. You get to have five guests. I trust you have prepared your guest list. Who's on it? I
1: have thought about this an embarrassing amount. <laughs> I have gone back and forth between celebrity <laughs> answers, between my best friends that are all over the country okay so ellen of course mm-hmm. i know everybody says ellen i have to also say she's ellen. great she that's why everyone says her she's amazing she is amazing and this is a little strange and also very like trendy for right now but i am currently obsessed with the try guys from buzzfeed oh my gosh yes I want
0: them to come to the dinner party with ellen that would be amazing me too but like i mostly would just want keith right keith is <laughs> so my then? favorite that's so funny you say that because i was literally last night i'm like you can't invite
1: all the try guys to dinner you have to pick one of the try guys who are you gonna pick i'm like well keith Keith. like of course i know but so then i just decided to invite all of them because i couldn't possibly pick and they're funnier together and okay so so ellen
0: and the try guys oh that's oh my gosh i need to be at that dinner party and for anyone who who isn't familiar i'll obviously link in the show notes as i always do but the try guys are they it's It's a video series on BuzzFeed and they, they try stuff and I found them through, actually I didn't, I haven't known about them for that long. I found out about them like two months ago when they took ballet because of course I saw that one. Um, and then I went back into the archives and like, I I went deep and I watched all their videos. The one where they spend a night out wearing heels. Oh my gosh. They're just amazing. So I'll link to some of their best stuff, but, um, needless to say a dinner with the Try Guys and Ellen would be amazing. So, but I mean, also like Obama, you know, like yeah.
1: important people
0: too, but the try guys and Ellen would yeah. be incredible. Exactly. All right. And wrap this up for us. Give everyone listening a reason to run today. Um, run today
1: because it makes you centered and feel better. Um, that's another thing I've learned as a foster parent is I am a much better person after I've had time to clear my mind. So run and clear your head and have a better day the rest of the day for it.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. I have loved this chat. I definitely need to have you back on here to grill you about travel and everywhere you've been and everything you've learned. But for now, thank you so much for knocking it out of the park and for sharing your story with us. Thank you, Allie. It's been awesome. And that is a wrap on episode 41. Danielle, thank you so much for being my guest on today's show. I loved talking to you. In case that wasn't clear by me constantly saying, oh, my God, I love that. And thank all of you for listening. I so love having you here, and I love doing these shows. I really hope to get back onto a regular updating schedule. Ideally, I will have new episodes every Thursday, and I apologize that it's been a little sporadic lately. Blame Crohn's disease. Blame my, my dang health because it's kind of been keeping me from doing everything I want to do with this show, but hopefully that all ends soon. Thank you, Danielle. Thank all of you for listening. If you're loving the show, head over to iTunes, make sure you subscribe and please consider leaving a rating and review so we can keep growing this community. I would be so very grateful and follow me. I am on Twitter and Instagram at Allie on the Run 1 and make sure that you're following the Allie on the Run Facebook page for updates and lots and lots of pictures of Ellie, my beloved puppy. Thanks for listening. And as always, thank you for joining me on the run.